Hi, welcome to episode 19 of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. In this week's episode, my co-host, Stephen Gallo, and I will be joined by Art Wu from BMO's economics team in Toronto. We will be talking about the Evergrande situation and what it might mean for China's economy, Chinese financial markets, and global FX. The title for this episode is Evergrande, Turning Point for China or Tempest in a Teapot? Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges, presented by BMO Capital Markets. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Stephen's co-host. In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets like commodities. We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash global exchanges. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Greg, thanks very much for that intro. And of course, the title, I certainly can't take full credit for Tempest in a Teapot. Uh, That's a good one. Uh, So for the record, we're 21 days into the month of September now. And when I take a look at the broader FX market, I can't see any major currency pairs uh, that have had a year-to-date range break. Uh, But what I do see is that the BBDXY, which of course is one measure of the broad value of the dollar, is trading 0.6 to 0.7% higher so far this month. And a portion of that move has coincided with a decline in risk assets like equities. Uh, Now, it seems likely that financial stress related to Evergrande has been responsible for part of that move. We don't really know how much. But in order to delve into this issue, as you've already mentioned, Greg, we've brought in Art Wu. Art is a BMO uh, senior economist based in Toronto, and he's got many years of watching the Chinese economy behind him. Art, welcome to Global Exchanges. Well, thanks for having me on board. I'm glad to be here. Art, you know, one of the things that stands out from my vantage point is the number of headlines I've seen with the infamous name Lehman in the title. And so I think with that in mind, we'll dive right in with a question perhaps many investors are trying to answer. Is Evergrande's potential failure China's Lehman moment? Art, what do you think? Take it away for us. In a nutshell, no. It's certainly not good news for the economy. But if we take a step back, we just don't think it's going to lead to you know, widespread contagion, bringing down numerous home builders, or lead to a widespread banking crisis, or a deep economic downturn. Okay, Art, if I can just stop you there, for my benefit and the benefit of all our listeners, can you tell us why you think we should not be comparing the potential failure of Evergrande to the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the 0809 subprime crisis in the U.S.? Yeah, I don't think the current situation facing China is really that comparable as, from what I understand, the U.S. financial crisis back then was more about weak lending standards. You know, and banks offloading their housing exposure through securitization. In China's case, bank lending standards have actually been quite tight to both developers and final house buyers. If I could just jump in and, and help Art a little bit, Stephen, the comparison to uh, the U.S. crisis 
Look, when Lehman Brothers failed, it was a financial institution with sort of unknown and unknowable derivative contracts with many other financial institutions. So the concern wasn't just Lehman Brothers, it was Merrill Lynch, it was countrywide, it was every bank in the system. Things are much different when we're just talking about a property developer rather than a financial institution. Yep, Greg, I can't agree more. If you look at Evergrande's liabilities, which roughly amount to less than a half a percent of bank loans, they can easily be absorbed by the entire banking system. But I would like to stress that China's housing market, it's not problem free. Home builders have been under increasing stress in recent years as the authorities have been trying to prevent a bubble, reduce financial stability risks, and promote affordability. Thus, sector profit margins have been heavily squeezed. Uh, but in Evergrande's case, whose financial issues or problems have been well known for quite a while, government's efforts to get the company to shed its debt load have obviously not been that successful. So I would view their problems somewhat more idiosyncratic rather than completely reflective of the entire home building sector. Really useful comments there, Art, but I just want to go backwards for a second because you mentioned uh, that the property sector in mainland China does have its share of problems. So I want to drill down a bit further into that issue. Are we talking about an issue for the property sector which is directly related to a massive supply uh, demand imbalance? Is, is that a problem, do you think, Art? You know what? That's a great but not such an easy question to answer because to me that gets to the heart of the matter given how large real estate development has been to the economy in recent years. Most people think it estimated accounts for roughly 15% of GDP. However, I don't think that nationwide housing supply demand fundamentals are severely out of whack or basically new supply coming on stream is going to severely outstrip demand. Proving this is difficult because we just simply don't have hard detailed statistics. A couple factors lead me to believe this. The first is the authorities have been trying to prevent speculation, multiple home ownership, and curb financial leverage in property-related activities for a number of years, particularly over the past five years. Last year, we had the famous three red lines come out to curb home builder leverage. Two, China's housing market, it's just simply not one large homogenous market. So there will be pockets of strength and there are going to be pockets of weakness among different regions and different cities. So it's not surprising we've seen some home builders default and get into trouble over the past years as they probably simply are exposed to geographically weaker parts of the country. So there's, you know, there's been this growing divide between the country's more developed coastal regions, the manufacturing powerhouse of the country versus the less developed inner regions or the northern Rust Belt, for example. And this divide has risen during the pandemic. Hey, Art, can I ask the next question? I'm hyper-focused on spillovers and contagion. You mentioned that Evergrande's liabilities are only a tiny fraction of bank loans, so there's unlikely to be a banking system issue. But I'm wondering if that's not all there is. If Evergrande has got problems and is going to miss some payments, could it be a sign that a bunch of property developers will go under? 
and that the combination of all of them could cause a major problem in the Chinese banking system? Well, that's the trillion yuan question. It can't be entirely ruled out, but I, I guess I would place that as a very low probability. I would also revert to my previous answer that the housing market is not homogenous in China, and that generally speaking, housing demand was incredibly strong in the first part of the year, where new housing measures were being implemented in many parts of the country to take heat off the market. Another perhaps underappreciated factor that also protects the housing market more broadly is the lack of investment alternatives in the country. And housing is simply viewed as a great place to park money. And it's been underpinned by the fact that it's harder for citizens to move their money offshore in recent years. Okay, Art, so you mentioned in your last response something to do uh, with the inertia related to outbound capital flows or uh, specifically the difficulty associated with moving money offshore. And that triggered something in my brain. And so I'm wondering if we can transition the conversation over to something I've actually learned from listening to you in the past uh, in your coverage of the Chinese economy, which is uh, this notion of the so-called trapped money hypothesis. Can you just give us and our listeners a brief overview of this theory and how it relates to the situation in China's property market? I don't know whether it's so much a theory, but an observation. But if you recall back in the middle of the last decade, China's foreign reserves fell very rapidly. Like they were over four trillion US dollars in 2014, and they tumbled to just over three trillion by the end of 2016. And during that year, we had the mini devaluation of the renminbi, the downturn in the stock market, and all sorts of concerns of over financial stability. But in response, the one thing Beijing did is that they tightened capital controls. These controls are specifically on outbound outflows, state in the obvious, by Chinese residents. And that response has effectively remained in place since then. So it's basically not so easy for Chinese individuals or companies to take money outside of the country for investment purposes. And that keeps more money onshore than would otherwise be the case. Those are all fantastic points, and I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, what I would point out is that over the past year or so, this imbalance, which you alluded to between inbound and outbound capital flows has added a lot of support to China's overall external position. And certainly with less tourism going out of China and more export receipts flowing in, the effect from the net flow of capital has merely been compounded. And I think there are a few implications of this that we need to keep in mind. First, I think regulators have become more adept over time at managing China's balance of payments because this situation that we're looking at, it doesn't seem like it's happened by chance. Let's just say that. Uh, secondly, this all points to me to the fact that it's very difficult um, as a speculator to bet against the Chinese yuan, the currency, because the balance of payments keeps the currency well anchored. And third, at least in my opinion, this backdrop makes me a bit less bullish, I think, than the consensus on the pace and extent 
of Chinese financial opening, because ultimately, in order for policymakers and regulators to continue tackling financial imbalances, policymakers need to be cautious with how much control they cede to the private sector or non-resident investors. Stephen, I'm, I'm completely on side with your point on financial liberalization. It hasn't progressed that much in recent years, other than letting foreign banks enter into the market. Hey, if I could ask the next question, and probably the last, just back to the issues of spillovers from Evergrande. One of the things that has happened over the last couple of weeks, this has been a theme, is that copper has fallen about uh, 6% or so, and, and Aussie has fallen, uh, I'll call it 3%. So Art, do you think these moves seem about right, or is there a chance that they are overdone? And I guess, how much do you think the Evergrande situation will impact Chinese metals demand over the next six months or so? Hard to say whether the correction is overdone. It's not surprising to see metals sell off a bit, given how important Chinese demand, particularly property-related demand, is to global metals. In our view, a temporary cooling in the, in the housing market should lend support to our forecast that prices of base metals should ease off next year compared to this year. The more critical factor we think that will impact prices, which have performed exceptionally well over the past year, still revolve around the pandemic and how it unfolds. And what I mean by that is that if the pandemic-driven spike in demand for durable goods supply chain shortages and bottlenecks and global logistics and transportation networks, if these eventually reverse course, it should reduce demand for metals and will lead to average lower prices in 2022, whether this is for copper, nickel, aluminum, or steel. Thanks for that, Art. That's great comments there. We're going to wrap up the podcast now. Art, I want to personally thank you for sharing your insights and being patient with us as we attempt to navigate the complex economic backdrop in China. Hey, Art, I also want to thank you for coming on our, our show. Thank you for having me come on board. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure joining you. Thanks, Art. So this brings us to the end of Episode 19 of Global Exchanges. Thanks, listeners, for joining us, as always. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team, this show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. 
It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. Fimo is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause Fimo or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. Fimo is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and Emo accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. Emo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.